Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Folta. And welcome again to Talking Biotech, the podcast that explores where our food comes from and how biotechnology stands to play a significant role in accelerating the human-mediated process of plant genetic improvement. And again, this isn't a forum to talk about big ag traits, at least not at this point. There's basically, what, two traits that have been safely used for 20 years and, frankly, not that excited about talking about them anymore. So let's look forward to the things that we really care about. So what what innovations can we come up with to help the environment, uh, help keep farmers making a buck, and make better products for consumers, and and even maybe ways that we can spread the world's safest food supply to those around the world that could really benefit from our agricultural innovations. That's the stuff that gets me excited, is how do we use technology to improve the human condition. And today we have two guests that have, have done this on different levels. First, uh, Dave Conley from Aqua Bounty, who will tell us about the Aqua Advantage salmon. And uh, second, Pat Heslop-Harrison, who will talk to us about banana, des- uh, banana domestication and breeding and genetics and some of really interesting applications of bananas that we don't always think about. Uh, it's a world staple. It's used in currency, all kinds of interesting things. So both interviews are worth hearing. And as much as I've edited them down, both are longer than can fit into a one-hour podcast. So uh, today I'm not going to answer your questions like I usually do. Instead, we'll run these two little bit longer interviews back to back. So drop the deck on your mower down another few notches. Take another pass. Uh, add about uh, three miles to your run or put another quarter in the parking meter outside of Starbucks because uh, both guests today are outstanding and will tell wonderful stories that I'm sure you'll enjoy. And tonight we're really fortunate to have um, a co-host. Um, I welcome from uh, Nebraska, Val Swenson. Val has been somebody who has been a, uh, a, a really wonderful student connection. Uh, she's been very active in different capacities on social media in educating the public about biotechnology. And really in her second year of college, 
uh, just finishing her first year, has been amazingly articulate with uh, respect to understanding these technologies. And um, so, Val, where where are you uh, now in terms of your education? I just finished my first year at Wichita State, uh, first year undergrad, and I'm going to be transferring to University of Nebraska in Lincoln. I'm going to be majoring in science communication and most likely horticulture or plant pathology, kind of still deciding on that. No, both areas are really good ones, and plant pathology, I think, is an underrated major. I think is so many opportunities uh, in any state right now to mitigate the problems with uh, pests and pathogens. Uh, you got to that's a good place to be. And as a horticulture guy, um, certainly, I'm, I think uh, plant pathology has lots of promise. What about um, your participation in social media? What are some of the places where you've been uh, participating and kind of you're making a difference? Well, my biggest gig has been as an admin for the group GMO LOL, which is kind of funny because it's it's supposed to be a, a, a funny group where people kind of go to blow off steam about their frustrations and the things that they have to deal with with trying to communicate this stuff. I think when it was a dozen people, I was one of the early people in that boat. And it was really a kind of a good time, you know, people would post the funny things they would read or the funny criticisms or, you know, look, I was just told I worked for Monsanto again, you know. And uh, now it's <laughs> like, now it's like this crack SWAT team of debunkers. I think we're about to hit 9,500 members. <laughs> and then what's so funny is when stories break or news breaks or something's posted online, the GMO LOL group You'll go over there and someone will say, I just read this over on, uh, you know, whatever website and on, on Institute for Responsible Technology. What do you think? And this is just some concerned person who has see something. And, uh, and then I'll look at it and I'll go, oh, I better chime in here. And I'll look at it and it has 375 responses and all of them are good. So then I don't have to do it anymore. I used to be a big debunker online, and now it's all being done by a, a really excellent group of excellent communicators and very solid, who understand the science. Yeah, um, and it's also a good thing because we have like all these newcomers that come in, and they maybe aren't as well-versed in what works and what doesn't. And so we kind of try to redirect some of that, like, oh, well, here's your sources that you can point to for this and this and this. What about uh, you were in recently in University of California, Davis, and I know that I was somebody who was excited to recommend you come to this camp. Uh, this um, It was the biotech boot camp. It was our second one that was done by invite only for science communicators. And what were some of the big take-home messages you got out of that? Oh, there was so much that I got that is going to be so useful going forward. Like we talked a lot about in the beginning there was a session just for students and um, one thing that I took note of was the importance of infographics. Um, you see a lot of misinformation being spread with these memes that say, you know, broccoli is going to cure cancer or whatever it is, whatever the case may be. And so, and I've seen a lot, like you've made some yourself that have been really useful and have gotten a lot of circulation. The imagery is really what gets a lot of movement in social media. Other things were talking about acknowledging biotech problems and improving the collaborations and expressing your thoughts without rocking the boat too much. 
limiting the influence of Dr. Oz and Food Babe, you know, put pressure on the media outlets to, you know, kind of take responsibility for fact-checking before they're putting these people on the air. Things like organic marketing. One thing was, uh, you know, the organic seal is not a health claim, but a lot of the organizations say that, you know, they're not using it as a health claim, but they continue to do so anyway. And there's that whole saying, like, if it scares, it airs. And so that's been something that's really made communication difficult because you have all this scary stuff floating around on the Internet, and it's up to us to try and redirect people to what's factual. So any students who are thinking about careers in science communication or studying science communication, what is a good first step for them to start to get involved? I would say networking with people who are more educated than you. Networking with other scientists and people in the field has been really helpful. Well, one good thing I could say about you is that you've never said no to an opportunity. When someone waves a carrot, you go, okay, I got it. And I think that your energies are very much appreciated inside this group. And that's really the reason why I was excited to have you on today, because you've been such a good participant. And uh, I think it really will help you um, continue to get more excited and involved. And thank you very much for being here. Okay, so today's guest on Talking Biotech to explain some of the innovative technologies that are being used in uh, helping food and families and, uh, and, and things we really care about. One of the areas is getting a protein source to uh, families and especially kids early in life. That cognitive development is directly related to protein input. And the high quality proteins and oils that we get from fish are really um, are really important for all of us, uh, if, whether it's cardiovascular health as we age or in uh, early development. And one of the ways that some have proposed to do this is to have fish that can be farmed that grow faster, meaning they have more sustainability because they grow faster, meaning the same amount of inputs are being used to generate a product much more rapidly. With us today is uh, Dave Conley, who's the Director of Corporate Communications for Aqua Bounty. Uh, The main office is in Maynard, Massachusetts. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us, Dave. Well, thank you, Kevin. It's a pleasure to be here. Val Swenson is also here with us. Hi, Dave. Hi, Val. So I I guess what I'd really like to start out with is too too often biotechnology gets, gets accused of being a solution without a problem. And so could you tell us a little bit about the problem that your product addresses? Well, as you know, uh, salmon farming uh, has a a history going back to probably the 1960s, uh, at least modern salmon farming. And uh, the issue has been uh, related to growth in sea-based systems. Um, The fish normally are raised in hatcheries, uh, up to a certain point where they're able to enter salt water, then they're transferred to the sea pens, and they're grown out. The issue there is that because they're in a natural environment where their physiology is governed by temperature and photoperiod, these fish will grow in the spring and the summer when the temperatures are higher and the light, the days are longer. And in the fall, when light is reduced and the temperature drops, the fish stop growing. So for a farmer that's feeding an animal for 12 months of the year 
and only getting six months of growth, that's a, a tremendous uh, cost because you have to maintain these animals and um, have people taking care of them, uh, all of the infrastructure around them. They're at risk of storms and uh, exposure to disease organisms or parasites. So there's a lot of risk over the course of, uh, of the year. So if you can maintain fish in a system which allows them to grow year-round and get uh, 12 months of growth rather than only six months, then that would be a boon to farmers. It would also be a boon to consumers because they would be able to uh, have fish 12 months of the year fresh and uh, wholesome delivered right to, to their local market. Dave, I'm going to jump in and ask you a little bit about the trait in the Aqua Advantage salmon. Um, could you explain to us how that works, what the trait is, where it comes from, and, and why why we're doing this technique for the Aqua Advantage and what the benefit is? The innovation that Aqua Bounty has come up with is to insert a growth hormone gene from a Chinook salmon, and that allows the Atlantic salmon, which uh, is what we were producing, that's what an aquabanage salmon is, it's an Atlantic salmon, it allows this fish to grow 12 months of the year because it's producing growth hormone throughout its, its um, cycle. So normally in a CPAN system, from egg to harvest could be anywhere from 30 to 36 months, whereas an aquabanage salmon, which is grown in a land-based facility where the temperature is controlled year-round, these things can grow to market size in half that time. So we're looking at 16 to 18 months, um, 20 months on the outside. So the advantage of that is... Uh, uh, right now, we do have 12 month of the year access to salmon, at least many of us that live in metropolitan areas, but it seems like it comes in from Norway or Chile or a long way away. So how does that relate to the sustainability issues from the side of carbon? Because these are going to be grown in land-based facilities, they could be situated anywhere. For example, you could have a farm located outside of Chicago or St. Louis, or New York. And therefore, they are producing and able to ship into those local markets. If you're looking at a carbon footprint, shipping salmon from Chile into, we'll say, Miami, which is the, the most uh, common port of entry from that place, we're looking at a carbon footprint that may be 25 times greater than producing uh, salmon aquadvantage salmon in a facility close to uh, Miami and um, the similarly if you were to ship uh, salmon from we'll say Oslo to New York City you're looking at a carbon footprint of 23 times as much as growing aquadvantage salmon close to uh, New York and uh, we've actually done a, a carbon uh, footprint uh, calculation where if we look at a plant that would be, or a farm that would be uh, located in the United States with a 500-mile trucking radius, the carbon footprint to ship an aquadvantage salmon to a market within that 500 miles is 23 to 25 times less than importing salmon from either Chile or Norway. So there's a tremendous 
environmental benefit for that. All right, so you can make a f- same fish faster, and then it costs less in terms of its carbon footprint, but how does it help sustain natural fishery populations? Uh, we've done a number of research uh, projects on this, and uh, what we've found is that the Aqua Advantage salmon utilizes its feed much better and, in fact, uses uh, 20 to 25 percent less feed over its production cycle. So from uh, an environmental perspective, it's using less fish meal and fish oil. And for people that are concerned about the amount of uh, fish that are being harvested to convert to fish meal and fish oil, this is a positive. The other side is a number of researchers have looked at substituting fish meal and fish oil with plant-based proteins. And again, the aquadvantage has performed very well with uh, high percentages of plant protein in the diet. So when we look at uh, the sustainability issues, Aqua Advantage presents a number of very attractive things to consumers because if we're using less fish meal and fish oil, we're having less of an impact on the wild fisheries that are still in the ocean, and we are producing fish uh, faster and closer to the point where they can be consumed. There's a lot of people that seem to really prefer wild-caught salmon, and there's a lot of... um, I was just wondering if if we see more of these land-based facilities, do you think people are going to start to choose that over wild-caught, or do you think wild-caught salmon is just going to become a thing of the past? Well, I think the the issue over file, uh, farmed fish and wild is uh, somewhat of a manufactured discussion. Wild salmon has always been uh, a part of the diets of certain areas of the country, and certain consumers prefer that. I believe that that market will always exist. Um, there will always be a demand for for a wild salmon as long as they can be sustainably harvested and their habitat is protected. But as we know, the world is a changing place. The oceans of the Pacific Northwest are changing. There's certain uh, indicators that it's becoming more acidic. There is impacts of temperatures uh, increasing in the North uh, Pacific. And uh, salmon stocks are are migrating further north and even into the Arctic. the food chains for for those uh, feeding salmon is changing, and therefore there may be negative impacts down the road that we're not even uh, um, going to be able to do anything about. So developing alternative ways of producing uh, seafood for a growing population, which reflects a growing demand, is going to take some innovative thinking and innovative technologies. I think the idea of uh, whether farmed salmon, as we're proposing, will become a dominant form, I really don't know. It's, it's, uh, it really depends on what happens in the world as we move forward. But we do know that things are changing, and we can't consistently produce seafood the way we have in the past to uh, continue to harvest at the levels we have. Uh, We know that aquaculture will be increasing. It has been increasing year over year for the last 30 years. So 
I suspect that aquaculture will become the dominant form of seafood supply. Wild will still exist in, in uh, I think, niche markets, but we really have to look at farming as the way to provide uh, seafood well into the future. It is really interesting because I, when you think about domestication of whether it's plants or whether it's cows, pigs, whatever, that really the fact that we've taken wild species and brought them under human control and actively bred them and prepared them to be more suitable for human consumption and for human um, uh, husbandry has really raised the quality of the product and kept the, the price affordable for people. I mean, probably the best prices of food supply in human history. And fish have kind of not fallen into that. And really, aqua, the aqua bounty product seems to be very consistent with that idea of a genetic improvement that makes it uh, makes the salmon better. But how, how, how does this apply to fish in general? I mean, is this something that you see more fish coming into the uh, domesticated pipeline, pipeline with this kind of adjustment? Well, there's been discussions on whether we should have a few species that are farmed extensively um, to provide the, the, the fish protein or whether we should have a, a wide number of species if we look at what's happened on land, we rely on a very small number of animals to produ- provide food. And I think for seafood, it may end up that we also use a, a, a smaller number of, of uh, species. But this is still early days. And I think that the idea of, of being able to farm huge numbers of fish species um, is going to have its limits for a number of technical reasons. So I understand the uh, salmon has been around since 1989, like the first ones that were created using this method. And so where are they in the process now towards ending up on the table? As of today, we really have no idea when the approval from FDA will come. Uh, The initial experiments were done in the late 80s of trying to put this... uh, transgene into a fertilized egg. We had a number of eggs that hatched and we could see from the growth of the fish that they had integrated the transgene into their genome. They were growing much faster than their siblings. And of those fish, the one that became sexually mature first was the fish that we used to develop the aquabanded salmon line. So, in fact, we have not been doing any genetic engineering since 1989. We have just been breeding fish the same as other hatcheries do. Over that time, we've produced over 12 generations of aquid salmon through classical Mendelian um, genetics. There is no genetic engineering going on today. They're just being bred because the transgene is being passed naturally from one generation to the next through the male line. With 12 generations of the salmon, what, and you don't have the approval yet to go forward with you know, putting these on the market, what happens to those fish? Well, that's a very good question. We <clears throat> have been growing them out in a land-based facility in Panama, because we produce them as eggs in Prince Edward Island, and we have this facility in Panama in order to grow them out 
to see whether or not they perform as expected. And so we have been doing this R&D over the years since uh, 2008 when the facility in Panama was built. And this is a very small facility. It, it can't produce very many fish. And so we have to call them because we can't continue to grow the same number of, of salmon. We have to actually thin them out in the tanks. And so over the course of the years from 2008, we've actually had to um, kill these fish and landfill them because without approval, we're not allowed to give them away to a food bank or to eat them or to provide them to other consumers. The, the downside of that is that this is very good protein. It could have been utilized. Um, people may be surprised that the tonnage that we've landfilled to date is 62 tons of perfectly good aquavantage salmon. That's really a shame. It really is uh, a consequence of really a, 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 a regulatory system that's desperately in need of some revision because when you can't deliver that much high-quality protein to starving populations or, you know, or you just, uh, it, it boggles the mind that this kind of thing can, can happen. Um, and I guess one of the reasons for that is because of the public perception, which doesn't always match with the science. And you said the buzzword hormone, which sets off red flags everywhere. And if maybe just this is a good opportunity for us to clarify, and maybe I'll take a guess and you can tell me if I'm wrong. It seems like the hormone, the, the growth hormone gene from the Chinook salmon is just on constitutively, meaning that it's on all the time rather than in this manner where it's, uh, think of it as taking a rest for part of the year. And is that an accurate way to think about it? Yes, it is. In fact, um, what we look at it is the fish, because we're able to control the environment uh, in our land-based facilities, therefore the temperature is optimized, their feeding is optimized, and they perform very well. They grow very quickly and the gene is performing. You can see that just in the fact that they have such accelerated growth. But what people don't realize is these fish don't get any larger than the non-transgenic salmon. They just reach their, their mature size sooner. When people look at the fish uh, photo that we have on the website or that they see in, a, in an article, uh, and they see the large fish in the background, the transgenic uh, aquavantage salmon, and they see a sibling. So this is a sister which doesn't carry the transgene, but they have the same uh, family heritage. That small fish will eventually reach the same size as that large fish in the background. It just takes twice as long to get there. And people don't seem to realize that. These fish don't become huge monsters. They don't become... 50 pound or 100 pound or whatever the activists have tried to portray they just reach a mature market size and we're probably be harvesting them at about three to five kilo well as you know there's a lot of people really concerned about the safety and the testing and what all is involved so i was going to ask if you could give us a brief summary of what is involved in assessing the risks and what kind of testing is done to you know, say whether or not this is safe for people to consume. 
Well, the FDA has a, uh, a protocol that they go through when they're evaluating a, a genetically engineered uh, animal. And this is posted on the FDA website. Um, something I'd like to point people to is that the FDA has a number of publications on their website related to our application uh, that discusses their review protocol and um, the depth to which they have examined our fish. By the way, our fish is probably the most studied farmed fish in existence today. Um, but primarily what we look at is does the fish do what we say it's going to do? So does it grow and perform as we say it does? And in fact, we have provided the data that show that and the FDA is satisfied with that. The other thing we look at is, is the fish materially different than the non-transgenic? We have provided the data on that and the FDA has said, no, there really is no difference between our fish and a non-transgenic Atlantic salmon. So, if we go back to the public meeting held in December of 2010, what they concluded was our fish was healthy to eat, did not involve any kind of safety risk, and in fact, there was no material difference between our fish and a standard Atlantic salmon. So, you would think that um, that would have put things to rest, but in fact, they haven't. Here we are. Almost five years later, this September, from when that meeting was held, and we still don't have an approval. The thing that kind of breaks my heart about that is that you guys are, um, that Aqua Bounty is a small corporation. How many people in, in your company altogether? Most people think that uh, Aqua Bounty is a large corporation when, in fact, we are only 15 people, and eight of those take care of the fish and work in our research um, hatchery in Prince Edward Island. So when you look at a company that's 15 people that has been in the FDA process now for 20 years because we started this in 1995 and who has spent over $80 million and still is without an approval, if you were to look at this in the lens of other small biotech companies wanting to bring innovative products to market, they look at us as the, what would you call it, test case or case study of the failure of a regulatory system to assess and approve innovative products. It's really sad because we talk a good game, at least politically, as well as those in activist circles, about how we need to be spurring more innovation from more competition from smaller companies. And if we had a battery in a, an electric car that they said could not be allowed to be used after 20 years of testing and after every question was answered, even though it could decrease carbon use, has more sustainable use of farm inputs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, people would be screaming in the streets. And it's one of the things that just seems so unusual about this particular product. And I don't know if it's because it's the first domino effect, that if it's the first animal to really receive a deregulation, then then uh, somehow the floodgates open and, there, and people would be concerned about the next generation of products. I, I don't know. The story of the Aqua Advantage salmon is, is unique in the sense that 
it was developed before a regulatory approval process was in place. And so when we first approached the FDA for an approval, they really didn't know how to handle this. And so the company and the FDA, in fact, had to go through a series of discussions and trying to find out how this would be regulated. Um, I think anybody familiar with the story realizes that the FDA issued guidelines in 2009. So this was a long time after the 1995 um, application was put in. So to go through that kind of a system where you're not even sure what the endpoints are and what the goalposts are um, presented a challenge to our company, which others that come after us will not have to go through. Um, as often been said, the pioneers often uh, suffer from the advantage or the disadvantage of being well ahead of their time and having to go through a long and difficult process whereby those that come afterwards are safe from that experience. I think for, for a company like Aqua Bounty, uh, this has taken its toll because we've been close to bankruptcy two to three times. We've had to reduce staff. We've had to cut back on research and development in other areas. And uh, the company has really concentrated all of its efforts on maintaining itself to get through this approval process. And unfortunately, there are a number of other things that we could have been working on um, to enhance our technology. If you look at our website, we are really trying to increase aquaculture productivity through modern molecular biology. The whole purpose of the company is to help this industry grow and do it in a sustainable way. So by having a system that's, in, in a sense, held us back, we have not been able to go on and do a lot of these other exciting things that we had originally proposed um, when we started down this road. So, Dave, one of the things that I've noticed recently in preparing for today was an article that was written by NPR and um, appeared on their website where it just seemed to me that I was a little bit uncomfortable with how it left me feeling about this particular product based on what I know and what was coming out in the article. It kind of had that uh, what I couldn't help but feel was more of a Jurassic Park influence than a science influence. And one of the things they really glossed over were some of the containment issues that were some of the concerns. So how likely is it that there would be some sort of breach in containment of the Aqua Advantage salmon? Well, we feel that this would be virtually impossible. Uh, one of the things is we're inspected on a, on a continuing basis by four regulatory agencies and have satisfied them that we've mitigated all risks of escape of fertile fish. More importantly, the product we're seeking approval is unable to reproduce because it's sterile. It's an all-female population, and these are only going to be reared in land-based facilities. If you look at that paper, even in the opening uh, statement in the abstract, they say that there is very little risk in these land-based self-contained systems. So when you look at the paper on a whole, you really have to wonder what they're talking about 
because they admit right up front there's very little risk. And something that I'd like to bring in here right now is last year I had an opportunity to speak to some managers of land-based salmon farms out in British Columbia, and um, I just asked them, I said, there seemed to be a lot of concern about our fish getting out. Do you get a lot of inquiries from the public about your fish getting out? And they looked at me and they said, well, Dave, you know that the likelihood of escape from these is practically zero. So, in fact, we hardly ever hear that kind of question directed towards us. With the fact that this fish is 100% sterile, if they are outside of their containment, you know, if they escape or something, people worry about what kind of impact that's going to have on the rest of the population of fish. Is there anything that you want to say to clarify people's concerns on that? We've designed state-of-the-art containment facilities, and we've adapted rigorous management procedures to assure accountability and complete containment of our fish. We're subjected to rigorous and continuing inspections by regulators, both Environment Canada and the FDA, have visited our facilities. And the draft environmental assessment, which was prepared for the FDA, included a finding of no significant impact for FONSI. What about for Potsy or Ralph? Oh, no. Happy to share. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no impact for Fonzie. Yeah. I love that. Um, so I what knew ab- that was coming. Well, <laughs> I know you can't you can't put up a jump shot like that for me. Um, has, so if, if you look at uh, studies that in more of the eco- ecology, like in real life ecology, is there anything that's been done with, let's say that there was some sort of accident where something happened where one got out what do we know about how this fish would behave in nature and what if what have you concluded from those kinds of assessments well this is something that that we have been concerned about almost from the beginning and so we have done um what would you call examinations of this and we've provided information and some of our fish to other researchers to look into these things And what we've found is that the published research to date have shown that even fertile fish are not expected to be significant environmental risks. And again, the most important distinction is our product is all female, sterile, and raised in land-based facilities under rigorous management practices. The research on AquAdvantage salmon to date has concluded that they would do poorly outside of their tanks where the growing conditions have been optimized for the fast-growing performance. Even the paper that you're um, citing in Bioscience this week stated in the abstract, little ecological risk is anticipated from engineered strains kept in fully contained facilities, which is exactly what AquaAdvantage salmon is. So the paper that is cited actually deals with the ability of modeling systems to predict various risks at various life stages. We've in essence, mitigated all the possible risk scenarios by combining the biological and physical methods to reduce those risks to essentially zero for our fish. So what I find is the media has taken this review and, in fact, not portrayed what it really says, but gone after it in a more sensational kind of way I mean, even the headline about, you know, will you see these in your rivers soon, 
um, I thought was a bit of a uh, disingenuous interpretation because what they're saying right off the bat is, you know, these are really not a risk in self or in these closed contained facilities. That's kind of the issue we deal with when we deal with uh, a writer that needs a provocative title in order to get readership. And uh, even though the answer is no, the idea of putting that, put just implying that, will you see this in the river near you soon, uh, it, it has a damaging effect on the innovation because of the skewing of public perception. Nowadays, how many people simply read that title or see that title retweeted? And the we forget about... Uh, as as people who try to communicate, sure, we're in trying to get an audience to your page. You may see a, uh, a a chunk taken out of context, which could have a very deleterious effect on a perfectly sound innovation. Well, I know that we've had a number of uh, inquiries about uh, security at our facilities, um, and again, I'd like to address the fact that you know these facilities are secure. They are surrounded by security fencing. We've installed motion detectors, we have video surveillance, we have 24-hour security monitoring, and we have employees on site 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So these are really, as one of the journalists said in an article last year, like Fort Knox for fish. The only way that uh, the fish would get out of there is, as you mentioned, if they grow legs and walk out, which is highly unlikely. Well, you say it's unlikely, which means there's a chance. <laughs> I, I would be such a good activist. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, when you talk about chance, uh, it's because as scientists, as you know, sure. we can't guarantee 100%. But, uh, you know, there is a chance that we will be hit by a comet before dinner time this evening. But what's the probability of that happening? Well, I guess we better find a beer early than I guess. I, <laughs> I really appreciate all the information you gave us on this product, Dave. I think that when we when when we look back through the through time in another ten years, when this is a common item on all of our plates and something that all of us are able to buy more affordable and have in our diet more often. I think we're going to look back at this time and really uh, appreciate what, what you and uh, Ron and others have done at uh, Erwa Aqua Bounty. And um, so I wish you all the best luck of luck in the world with the deregulation process, and hopefully we'll see your products soon. Well, thank you, Kevin. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to your listeners. Yeah, and thank you so much for helping us out, Val. It was really appreciate your input on, on the podcast today. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So thank you very much again, and um, we'll move along to our next segment. What can you do to help spread science through talking biotech? Our goal is to advance discovery to application with communication, ensuring the best technology reaches farmers, consumers, the environment, and the needy. Talking Biotech podcast is 100% funded by the Kevin Folta family vacation budget, and no contributions or advertisers will be solicited or accepted. What you can do is kindly take a few minutes and write a short review of this podcast on iTunes, tell a friend, 
or scratch TalkingBiotechPodcast.com into a bathroom stall at Chipotle. If you have any questions, send them to TalkingBiotech at gmail.com or through Twitter at TalkingBiotech. A podcast dedicated to these important issues is long overdue. Your assistance can help others find helpful information that will accelerate research and bring innovative solutions to those that need them. And welcome back to Talking Biotech. And today, this is the part of the podcast where we talk about the domestication and future of a specific crop that we all know about. So what is what does the science tell us about its origins and, and how humans help to improve it and where it's going in the future? And today's topic is bananas. Um, we all think about bananas. We uh, think about it as the nutritious fruit um, that comes encased in its own wrapper. Uh, typically this thing we eat for dessert or after exercise. But the banana has really a strong importance worldwide, especially in the tropics where it's uh, an essential uh, part of diets and essential for food security and economies worldwide. Um, Kurt Cameron has referred to the banana as the atheist nightmare. Uh, today on Talking Biotech, we'll learn about bananas and their domestication, their challenges, their future, and we're very fortunate to be talking to Professor uh, J.S., or we goes by Pat, Heslop-Harrison, and he's in the Department of Genetics, the University of Leicester, and um, he's been working on uh, a number of crops, uh, especially tropical crops, ones with interesting cytological stories, and banana is one of those. And we welcome you to Talking Biotech, um, Professor Heslop Harrison. Hello, Kevin. It's very good to talk to you about one of my favorite crops. Uh, that's, that's great. I'm really excited to be able that, that we're able to talk about bananas. Where did they originate? And, and then how did they start to radiate from that spot? Bananas started uh, and are originally from across Asia, from India across to Polynesia. Uh, where they tend to grow on forest margins or around where trees have fallen down. And their large leaves, of course, make them very good for growing underneath in the understory of other plants. They're not, of course, trees. They are growing under the trees, but they're more like huge grasses, so that they have the same sort of stem structure as as a grass and these big leaves that they grow under the trees mean they can grow in relatively low light everybody thinks of a banana as a banana tree but really it's a it's a it's an herb right yeah that's right it's the biggest of the herbs that we we know about and it can go up to something like 25 feet getting on for eight or nine meters in the biggest uh, varieties although we tend to prefer them a little bit shorter so that people can actually reach up reach up and harvest the big bunches of the fruits. And so what do we know about bananas and the ways that humans help to domesticate and improve the banana? The interesting thing, of course, is that the wild bananas are fertile and they have seeds within them and very little of the nice pulp, which is the part that we actually eat. So when you slice a banana lengthways, the way you would for a banana split or something, you see these tiny little soft black dots those would normally be seeds that are between quarter of a half inch diameter and they're nasty and gritty. So think of a banana more like a pomegranate with seeds that you can't eat from the wild. So probably what happened is people walking through the forests in prehistoric times would have found the 
sterile bananas without any seeds but with the fruit and those are the ones which they marked and came back and collected and then later at the beginning of agriculture started to grow. Wow, and how many years back is that when you talk about humans actually bringing bananas into their control? Well, the hunter-gatherers probably in uh, and tens and uh, ten to twenty thousand years ago would certainly have been eating them, and of course the chimpanzees and um, other species of uh, mammal would have been eating those nice fleshy ones as well, although not taking care to preserve them the way that the later human farmers came to do at the beginning of agriculture when agriculture became quite widespread worldwide, as you've talked about on several of the other podcasts. How much of the bananas that we have today that are seedless come from spontaneous triploidy? Essentially, they they are all spontaneous triploids. We can now make them by crossing different varieties as one has always uh, been able to do in crop breeding but in this case um, most of the varieties of banana that we eat are actually chosen from wild selections which have this special property of producing the fruits without the seeds. Now in the banana case the fruit is pretty much not worthy of eating if it does if it has seeds so therefore it's only the ones without the seeds which have been chosen for growth and we could also propagate those plant them out and grow them very easily by with the early farmers doing that so whereas for example the older people among your your listeners will certainly remember buying seeded oranges and seeded seeded grapes um, nowadays, you would buy very few oranges that have seeds or very few grapes that have seeds for use on the table. But banana, the seedlessness came right from the beginning. It's another interesting genetic trait because, of course, normally, if you don't produce seeds in a crop, the fruit will abort and won't produce the, won't produce any fruit because the plant doesn't want to put all that energy now it's into time fruit for amazing if it's not then history. going to either attract animals to eat it and distribute the seeds or give nutrition to the developing seedlings when it falls to the ground. So it's a bit like in human terms talking about having a placenta without an embryo. But in the banana case, those genes which are known for Parthenocarpy as it's called, producing the fruit without the seeds have been heavily selected in the varieties that we eat right from the beginning of the domestication eight to ten thousand years ago. So if you don't have seeds, how do you grow a new banana plant? Well, this is one of the interesting things about it is it's extremely easy to propagate by vegetative means or by tissue culture. So traditionally, when a plant grows up, when it fruits, the main stem of the plant will die immediately after the fruit starts to ripen and then suckers or swords as they're often called will grow up from around the side of the plant and form new plants which will then fruit and since you will produce four to six or even ten of those suckers you can cut those off individually and plant them wherever wherever you want. If you leave too many on one plant, then the yield will decline very rapidly. So in cultivation, you will only let one or two or perhaps three 
Pa Hill, as they're called. So they will grow on the hill and be very easy to propagate. Nowadays, most of the commercial material actually comes through tissue culture because then it can be guaranteed to be disease-free and have a rapid establishment so that it will be grown from virus-free, fungus-free cuttings from the plants in culture, in sterile plastic bags on a big scale. So you will visit plants which are producing one to two million cut one to two million tissue cultures a year those will then go into the soil and will grow for two to six or eight years before they're replaced and and how is the uh, how is this grown as a crop in, in, in production environment what are some of the so these are all clones and yep. uh, and what are some of the other aspects of uh, cultivation that uh, to produce a banana crop so you will grow them, so you will plant out the material from tissue culture in a well-fertilized and moist soil, generally speaking, within the tropics, although it's a slight spread to the subtropical regions as well. Um, then after nine months to a year, the first crop will be produced. The bunches, and when we're talking about banana bunches, we mean the big hands, which will weigh up to 100 pounds, um, up to 50 kilos, or typically 30, 30 kilos, 70 pounds. And on those, there will be 8 to 12 hands, which are what colloquially we call bunches in the supermarkets. But actually, those are the hands of bananas, uh, each of which will have a dozen or so fruits on them. So those will be harvested, packed, sent off to the shops, and then the plant will be cut down to the base, and then one or two of the suckers will be allowed to grow up for the next crop. That will happen for one year to six years, um, and then the plants will generally become weaker and will be dug out and replanted with new tissue culture materials. Interestingly, though, there are changes in the way that the bananas are being grown, and that's particularly seen in the high-intensity production within India, where, of course, the agriculture has changed dramatically in the last decade or so, enabling that large country to increase its prosperity and feed its huge number of people. So there, it's even being grown in a rotation with rice, so that the plant, the bananas are grown for up to three years and then they'll be cut down. The fields will be converted into paddy fields and flooded and rice will be grown for a couple of years, two or three or four crops. And then the bananas will be replanted again. And that gives a very, very high yield. And the flooding for the rice crops controls quite a lot of the diseases which are a continuing problem in bananas and when i think about bananas i usually am thinking about this um this cavendish banana this thing that we see in in the grocery stores here in the states and uh, i guess years ago it used to be something called the gros michel and uh, this, this one went away how many other varieties are there of bananas well altogether there are about 1500 we have various estimates um, and of course everybody who finds a really nice banana with a small finger size a small fruit size they call it gold finger and the second one they call is called lady finger 
So you get lots of bananas called Goldfinger and Ladyfinger that aren't genetically related. Equally, somebody else says, oh, we know this wonderful banana called, say, Pelipita, and then everybody else calls their banana Pelipita because that's a really special apple-tasting uh, variety with a nice, um, slightly more acidic fruit than we're used to used to eating. So we have the same variety with different names and different varieties with the same name. Why do we? Why can't we ever find these in the stores, or why can't we have access to the, you know, fourteen hundred ninety nine other cultivars that uh, that are grown? It's largely because of the very special properties which Cavendish has for the re- for transport and shipping of it. You're used to knowing that bananas, most of the things that you do with them, they will go black. So if you keep them in the fridge, they will go black. If you drop them, they will go black. If you put them in the warmth on a sunny windowsill, they, they will go black. But actually, Cavendish, a variety that we see in all the grocery stores, is the most uh, resistant to this type of of damage. We can also pick up the hands, even when they're quite ripe, and the whole hand will stay intact. It won't separate the fruits from the the stem to which, uh, which are attached. Equally, in the tropics, they can be harvested and boxed up and then shipped, ha- harvested when they're very green, boxed up and shipped for 10 days to two weeks around the world. And those won't ripen and then they can be put into large ripening houses and shipped to the supermarkets just when the demand is there and when, the pe- when, when they're turning from green to yellow and then they will ripen nicely. Most other bananas will not be quite possible and won't go the sweet sugariness when they're harvested as green as Cavendish is. And they will also have rather softer skin or other properties of the skin, uh, which mean that they're not very good for shipping. Gros Michel that you mentioned and was replaced because it became susceptible to disease um, in the 1950s and 1960s, was actually handled rather differently. So if you look um, at pictures of bananas being shipped in the 1920s or a little bit later than that, you will see everybody carrying the whole bunches, the 100-pound bunches on their shoulders and then throwing them into the boats. That wouldn't work with Cavendish, which has to be boxed up in the packing houses in the tropics where, where they're grown. And most other varieties would be even less resistant to the ways that we might handle them and it's kind of uh it's kind of sad because when you talk about the uh everything you just spoke about there with cavendish it seems like it really was selected for the uh for the industry the way that it can be farmed the way it can be handled and shipped and uh sure it comes out at the end it's a pretty good product but it uh, are there efforts a foot someplace to take some of these other more interesting flavors and actually breed them into new varieties? Yes, there certainly are. There's a a lot of interest in whether any specialized varieties or varieties with different flavors and textures would be suitable to to grow and to put into our our supermarkets. Um, At the moment, they 
generally the properties of the export, the shipping are insurmountable with current with current the current variety, the current fifteen, fourteen hundred ninety nine. Uh, other varieties, with the, the one exception of some of the cooking bananas. So uh, you have banana that we're used to is a sweet dessert banana, which is eaten when it's sweet. But there are other varieties which can also be called plantains, and they are peeled, despite having rather thick peeled, and then either steamed or fried or boiled. And those are available for export, but it tends to be only among expatriates and ethnic communities that those bananas are are eaten. So in Leicester, I can in where I live in England, we have many people of African Indian origin and therefore we're very fortunate that we can get many of the cooking plantains quite easily in our shops here. But they occasionally import a few of other dessert variety of bananas and you quickly you enjoy eating them but you quickly realize that they don't have you can't keep them in your fruit bowl for more than a day or two and you expect that three or four times the amount that you've eaten has gone to waste in the transport and um, distribution chain yeah we, we get the plantains here in Gainesville Florida and yep. uh, and I am a, a, a huge fan of the plantain. I cook them all the time. And I'm surprised that it took me basically 40 years of my life before I realized how good these things are. Absolutely. I would. Uh, I enjoy my, my bacon and eggs at weekends. I will always have with fried bananas. If I can't get the plantains, then I will have slightly green, just on the turn, Cavendish bananas peel them and fry them up and they are absolutely delicious also I regularly buy the, the curries and so forth that have banana with, within them too so you mentioned the banana in the fruit bowl but what are some of the other uh, applications or some of the other uses of a banana uh, other than weaponizing the peel <laughs> well we have uh, several other edible uses as well as, well as the, the cooking um, you can occasionally find chips, deep-fried bananas, and slices which have been, been cooked and salted or covered with, with sugar, and those are a, a delicious use. You can also use them as a flour, and in some health food and specialist stores, you can find something called matuki or fufu flour, which is just banana starch, which has been prepared and you mix that with a little bit of water and then put it into, uh, make it into balls, which are, you can then have with a stew or something like that. So those are other very pleasant ways to, to eat banana. But there are other uses as well from the, the banana. The fiber is extremely strong. So you'll be surprised to know that actually Japanese banknotes are made from banana fibers slightly different species called Musa textilis, but uh, looking very, very close to the ones that we eat. And those are mostly grown in, in Indonesia. And they can also be used for tea bags in that use. So what are some of the other uses of bananas outside of their typical eating uses that we never think about? So another one that's interesting, as well as uh, Musa textilis used for the fibers and banknotes is uh, 
another genus called Anseti. Again, it looks very like our um, fruit banana, but it's grown particularly in East Africa and in Ethiopia, where it's an important crop for food security. So what happens when many plants grow is they store the nutrition in the stem or in the roots, and then when they flower, they put all of that stored energy into the fruits. So that's what happens with our normal banana, and then we harvest and eat the fruits. And seti does the same thing, and it stores its starch in the stem and root, and then when it flowers, you stop, cut the plant down before it flowers, just when it starts to produce the floral meristem, cut it down, and then you dig it up and boil, grind, pound that up, and then you get a large amount of starch, which is used for, for food. So it's an important food security crop for Africa. So let's change gears for a minute and go from applications to genomics. What's really unusual about the banana genome? The wild species are the diploids, and then those have hybridized, as we talked about at the beginning, in the wild, producing the triploids, which are sterile, but also independently of the sterility part in the carpet, producing the, the fruits. So we are looking at the genomes of many of the 1,500 varieties, which actually include two different species. So the Musa cuminata, which has the AA genome, is the one that gives the sweet bananas, the sweet dessert bananas like Cavendish. So that has three of the A genomes, whereas many of the cooking bananas um, have a B genome as well, so that they're triploids with AAB or ABB genome constitution. So there are 11 chromosomes in each set so these are therefore 2n equals 3x equals 33 in the genetic chromosomal nomenclature and the genome size is relatively small so it's not quite as small as rice but it's nowhere near it's a tenth the size of the barley and maize corn genomes so therefore we were able to sequence it but one of the problems originally when we had in sequencing was just how heterozygous um, the two genomes were. So it was probably the earliest, one of the most heterozygous of any genomes that people had tried to sequence. So therefore, with our colleagues in, our colleagues in France had made a doubled haploid, so they'd taken a pollen grain with only one set, 11 chromosomes, doubled that, and that's what was sequenced, so it was homozygous, and therefore we could get all of the genes that were present in that. And that's what we're now looking at to try and find disease and potentially ripening and other genes which are interesting for breeders to use. And let me just recap something that for uh, there for the listeners who maybe aren't familiar with the way that this is done. But yep. you, you have a, what's called a doubled haploid. So uh, when you talk about a heterozygous genome, you're thinking about um, a gene. So you have essentially a gene from mom and a gene from dad or a chromosome from mom, chromosome from dad. Correct. And they're going to be quite different. And here banana yep. has uh, two from mom and one from dad or two from dad, one from mom. And so you have these uh, genomes which give you a lot more 
potential complexity that when you're sequencing, the challenge is how do you assemble this? How do you put a genome together when you have um, differences? And it makes it very challenging. So the one thing you can do is uh, have something that's got chromosomes from mom and dad and just get the set from one set from mom, one side from mom, and then double it. And now that gives you something that's going to be uniform, where at least you can construct a reference genome. So now that you have a reference genome, it allows you to then go back and get other data and line that up. And so it's, that's a really good first step. And so exactly how big is that genome in terms of megabases? And uh, when, did, when was it sequenced? Yeah, it was sequenced in 2012, and it's a little bit under 600 million bases, 600 megabases, so 20% of the size of the, the human genome. Well, my explanation was terrific for the what I was talking about with the heterozygosity, and one reason, of course, that it's much higher in banana is that because of the sterility and because of the lack of breeding in it, it's still very much a wild plant, whereas most other species have been bred and have been inbred over the centuries, and therefore there's been less variation between mum and dad. And it's kind of that uh, lack of, um, of improvement or, or uh, other types of uh, uh, variation that we're seeing, which really underlies some of the big challenges for bananas, because as you mentioned before, they're all grown from clones. And these are massive plantations that are all identical. And people will talk about, oh, monocultures and things like corn or soybeans, but they're nothing compared to banana monoculture. No, absolutely. Uh, the banana monoculture is an immense challenge. And, of course, it's an opportunity for all of these diseases which are waiting to find something that they can uh, grow themselves on. So worldwide about 45% of all the banana production is actually the Cavendish variety. And fortunately, it's been up till now relatively um, resistant to diseases. But nevertheless, it's almost a third of the production cost is spent on crop protection chemicals. And it can be sprayed up to two or three times even per week um, to control funguses and other diseases that are there. Um, some diseases can be controlled by very, very good agronomy, a good way of growing it. So if anybody has been through villages in southern India where, where agronomy is at the top notch, you will find a burning pyre outside each of the villages, and that's actually burning very often bananas that show um, symptoms of the virus bunchy top so that they look like a, almost like a chrysanthemum with a big bunch of uh, leaves not petals at, at the top and any plant with that is taken to the village edge and burnt. Um, in other cases if for example you have a bacterial disease um, a wilt which is a species of bacteria called xanthomonas when you cut the banana bunch off to take it before you move on to the next plant, you need to dip your machete into a, a bucket full of bleach, and that will kill the xanthomonas. If you don't do that, it will very, very quickly spread the disease potentially through a whole plantation. So agronomy can help with, with disease control. But, of course, as geneticists, we're very keen that we also improve the genetics of banana to get better disease resistance 
internally. And there are some diseases where there's no possibility of control with fungicides. So the best of those, the worst of those, or the best known of those is some of the fusarium wilts, where the fusarium spores are incredibly resistant. So once they are in the soil, you basically can't get rid of them. And once they're in a soil, then they will be washed around. So they will move through watercourses and spread hundreds or thousands of miles in, in watercourses. So very, very strict biosecurity is needed to prevent spread of the fusarium diseases. And can you um, help me understand and connect the different uh, pathogens to the diseases? Because we hear about a Panama disease and Black Cigatoga, and what are what are the causative agents of these specific diseases, and how bad are they right now? Yep. So those are two which are consider causing considerable problems at at the moment. They're both fungal diseases. Uh, Black Cigatoga is one which is expensive but can be managed either with fungicides but also with good agronomy. So you take cut the leaf off as soon as you see any symptoms of it. And actually all you need to do is put, in that case, you need to put the leaf upside down on the ground and then the spores won't be distributed in raindrops or, or by wind and the disease will be controlled. There's also some resistance to the, the black cigatoga. Much more of a problem is the new races of the Panama diseases. Panama disease, which is a fusarium um, wilt, which causes the leaves to court turn yellow and then droop. And if the fruit is starting to form, it will abort and the bunch will fall, fall off and the plant eventually fall over. So there's a new race of this Panama disease called Tropical Race 4 or TR4, and that is has become endemic in Southeast Asia and is extremely hard to, well, it can't be controlled in essence. There are a few clones of Cavendish, which are variants of the standard, which reduce the incidence of it. And by putting tissue culture plants, you might delay the disease enough to get a crop, but the yield is, is seriously affected. So the TR4 Panama disease, there's essentially no cure for it. There's no spray that's, that's possible, and it is spreading widely. So 10 years ago, we were with uh, people at Bioversity, the International Institute. We had a big campaign talking about this signaling the end of the banana and that had a rather positive effect in that all countries realized how important biosecurity was. And therefore, it was tightened up. So everybody became very careful not to import bananas, not to import shoes with their muddy boots from one country to, to another. And those have certainly reduced the spread. But sadly, within the last year, it's both been detected just before Christmas in 2014. It was detected in Queensland in Australia, but only on one farm, which is now strictly quarantined. And um, a year earlier, it had been detected for the first time in southern Africa, in Mozambique, 
where a Cavendish plantation was infected. And again, that has been felled and is now under strict quarantine um, conditions. And hopefully both of those have now been now been controlled. But really, we uh, it's absolutely essential now that we look for genetic resistance, which can be introduced into bananas, which will have the properties that make them exportable and make them such a tasty fruit for our grocery stores and our consumers. So disease is really one big threat, but what about uh, other abiotic stresses and things like climate change? How's that affecting bananas? Yep, there are effects there as well. So certainly storm damage is a big problem. And if we have differences in the way in storms, then the plants can be blown over and the leaves will be shredded. In fact, if you look at a banana plantation, you often find the leaves are much more dissected into multiple little strips and they don't look very much like the ones that are grown in greenhouses or in um, more, more cultivated, more sheltered settings. But that can still be a big, a big problem and it's one of the characters that's been being looked at. The other, as you mentioned, is the climate change and where bananas might be grown and different diseases will come in where you try and grow bananas under slightly more stressed conditions or outside the tropics or up mountains in, in the tropics. Those type of stresses will certainly reduce the, op the, the production of bananas. And maybe, again, we need to look at varieties which have been selected for other conditions. Talking about maybe future of breeding and trying to breed for better bananas, that have all of these uh, disease resistances and uh, other traits while still maintaining good uh, consumer traits and uh, the other important industry traits, how realistic is it that a biotechnology solution might be able to take something that already exists and just make that one little adjustment? So something like, I know that xanthomonas resistance yeah. and um, fusarium have been approached from a biotech angle. And, and how is that coming along? <coughs> These programs are, are certainly progressing very well, and there are some resistant varieties, as you mentioned, that are now in the field in Uganda, in, in Africa, and also being trialed in Australia as well. So there's some very interesting uh, transgenic bananas, which have many of the cultivation and agronomy traits that we would want, along with the, the disease resistances, although not yet much with the particular uh, Panama disease fusarium res resistance. There are various programs as well making crosses between different bananas, so recontaking diploid with um, two, two sets of chromosomes and crossing those to ones with four sets, or even using the very, very low sterility, very low fertility of the normal sterile bananas when they've been pollinated with fertile pollen to generate new new plants. Those programs are slow, but there's some particular successes in Honduras, in Central America, actually, where a couple of varieties are reasonably resistant, reasonable quality has been restored from the parents with better disease resistances. So those varieties from breeder called Fia are being grown although the uptake hasn't been as high as it might be. 
there's also some programs in Africa making crosses. So there's the crossing programs, there's the transgenic programs, relying, of course, on the diversity and recognizing which genes are involved in the particular traits we want to approve. And then there's also a number of mutation breeding programs um, where some varieties are quite successful. One called Mutiara in Malaysia has some resistance to delay the onset of the Panama disease and Mutiara is being grown there coming through from a, um, a, a radiation program inducing new mutations in genes. Well, so they're trying this from all different angles. But <laughs> well, we call, we call it super domestication. So we, we think about what traits and what properties we want in a new variety. And then we have this whole battery of biotech and conventional breeding techniques, which we can use to achieve that. And so therefore, you hand it over to the, the technologists, maybe the same people, but you regard it as, a, as an independent how you're going to achieve these super domestication qualities. Okay, so thank you so much for joining us today, um, Professor um, Pat Heslop Harrison. Um, if you could tell us, um, where would people find information about your program and your research? Um, and uh, are you present like on Twitter or social media? Yes, we have uh, fairly active social media presence. My website is www.molecularcytogenetics.com or alternatively www.molcyte.com. And I'm active too on Twitter as PatHH1, number one, PatHH number one. So we try and talk about the different things which we are doing in the lab. About a third of my program is with bananas and others with a number of different crops, but all using the same chromosomal and genomics approaches to super domestication and improvement of those crops using the biodiversity which is out there. It's so interesting to learn about the origins of the foods that we see every day, and I think it changes the way that I look at a banana. Great to hear, Kevin, and it's been wonderful to talk to you. Okay, thank you so much. Brilliant. Okay, very good to talk to you then, Kevin, and um, have a good rest of the day. And that was Professor Pat Heslop Harrison talking about the domestication and the super domestication of bananas. So that will put a lid on today's version of uh, Talking Biotech. And uh, just always want to remind you to think about that banana um, and all that's gone into it and all the people that have handled it and the time and space it's taken for those genetics to get to us through history for now thousands of years. Um, really appreciate the food you have. Um, think about those who don't. Um, think about those who grow it and think about those who make it possible for it to get to your plate. Um, we really need to do that in order to really be able to feed more people by 2050. It all starts with us today originally being grateful for what we have and uh, thinking of ways to get more to others. Um, my name is Kevin Fulta. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time on Talking Biotech. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests comments or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast 
and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.